Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 77. After Hours with Dr. Michael Ward. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've eavesdropped on Screwtape, and we've read his toast to the Tempter's College. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that it's an After Hours episode, and today we have a returning guest, Dr. Michael Ward. He was on the show earlier this season to talk about his book, Planet Narnia, as well as his various C.S. Lewis-related exploits. And for those of you who didn't hear that earlier show, Dr. Michael Ward is an English C.S. Lewis scholar, best known for his books Planet Narnia and The Narnia Code, in which he argues that the Chronicles of Narnia are structured to embody and express the imagery of the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos. He studied at a number of institutions, Regent's Park College, Oxford, Peterhouse, Cambridge, and the University of St. Andrews. He is currently a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He's been an extra in a number of films, including Shadowlands, Hamlet, and The World Is Not Enough. He's most recently taken the role of C.S. Lewis's vicar in The Most Reluctant Convert, a film about Lewis's conversion first to theism and then to Christianity. However, the reason he's here today is to talk to us about his newly released book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Dr. Ward, welcome back to Pines with Jack. Dr. Bates, thank you for having me. An honorary doctorate. I'm taking that. I'm taking that. It, I'm now going to introduce myself as Dr. Bates and people say, you don't have a PhD. It's like, excuse me, when Dr. Michael Ward says you're a doctor, you're a doctor. Quite. You, you, you have now officially been doctored, which might sound a little bit painful, so better not go there. I'm okay with it. Just as long as I get to uh, book restaurant uh, reservations with Dr. Bates, I'm good. It's way easier than having to do a PhD. Yes. Well, it's been about four or five months since you were last on the show. So what have you been up to in the meantime? Um, I've been mostly just preparing for the launch of this book that we're talking about today. And today is the actual official publication date for After Humanity. So I'm very pleased. It's very timely for me to be back on Pints with Jack. And it's amazing how much preparatory work goes into a book, even after you've got it completely off your desk, you, you then have to do, you know, well, last minute proofreads and copy editing and um, yeah, blurbs for the front cover, back cover, side covers. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's mostly what's been occupying me preparing the release of today's book. And in your biographical introduction, I mentioned your role in the Most Reluctant Convert movie. Uh, all I've heard is that it's going to be released sometime towards the end of the year. Do you know anything more? That's all I know too. I have seen a, a preview version of it, which was shown online to cast and crew in April. And another private screening is going to be happening in Oxford uh, in person at Magdalen College next month. But the public release of the thing won't happen until the fall. That's, that's as much information as I have. I and I don't know whether it's going to be released in cinemas or on Netflix or or some other platform, um, it's all a mystery at the moment. But it, I Fair can enough. say, I can say it's very good. I was pleased. Um, I was more than satisfied with how with how they put the thing together. Um, it's very faithful to Lewis's story. They the script is almost entirely drawn from Surprised by Joy. The two main actors, the two adult actors playing Lewis, are very well cast, and. Uh, Production values very high, and my role was 
sufficiently brief that I wasn't able to ruin the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been showing my wife the original All Creatures Great and Small in anticipation of showing her the reboot so that when we finally come around to the most reluctant convert, she'll recognize the actor who plays the young Lewis. <laughs> Very appropriate, yes. Did we talk last time about all the links between C.S. Lewis and All Creatures Great and Small? I can't remember. But I don't think so. Because the original Siegfried Farnan was played by Robert Hardy, who had been tutored at Oxford by Lewis and Tolkien. By C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I found this out, actually, between uh, now and our last interview. Uh-huh. Uh, I squawked at my wife and she went, what? I went, you know, Siegfried, <laughs> Lewis taught him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the new Siegfried in the reboot is played by um, uh, Samuel West. And he, when he was a boy, um, played the part of Prince Caspian in the BBC Narnia series. What? Yes. He comes from a theatrical family. His, his, both his parents were actors. Um, so, you know, even as a child, he was in the profession. And, yeah, he played Caspian, not only in Prince Caspian, but, you know, in The Dawn Treader too, because, remember, the BBC did four of the, of the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So everywhere you look with uh, James Herriot and the, and the All Creatures Great and Small, you've got these Lewisian connections. And now the new James Herriot is also C.S. Lewis. It's ridiculous. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> oh, that makes me really happy because I grew up watching All Creatures Great and Small. It was one, definitely one of my favorite shows. Um, mm. Oh, that's so cool. Well, uh, let's start talking about your new book as soon as possible. So before that, we're going to get through some housekeeping. Today's quote of the week naturally comes from The Abolition of Man, and it's probably one of its most memorable lines. We make men without chests and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means a little later. Uh, For the drink of the week, I am drinking a cup of Earl Grey. Dr. Ward, are you drinking anything? Uh, In order to maintain absolute sobriety, I'm drinking water. But as as today is a celebratory day given that it's the publication of After Humanity, I am, as soon as this conversation is over, I'm going out to the local pub on the river with a friend. And there I hope, first of all, to raise a glass of something bubbly like champagne or Prosecco. <laughs> and then with my meal, I'm going to tuck into a pint or so of their very fine cider that they do at that pub. See, that is one thing I do miss here in the States. It's nowhere near as common because mm. I lived in Gloucestershire for four years. So that's cider territory. Mm. So pretty much every pub you go to, they, they'll have their own local brew. Mm. And it was actually only when I was living in Seattle, for whatever reason, uh, there seemed to be a real cider society there. And so the, the, the content was really, really good. Mm. But down here in San Diego, I'm afraid it's, it's slim pickings. I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> Well, let's get on and talk about your new book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Men. Now, before we get started, there's a few things I just want to say. One, love the book. And it's exactly the sort of thing that I've wanted to see for all of Lewis's books. Because I always say, Lewis is very readable, but not always. That's particularly true in this case. (laughs) Uh, Very often, the modern reader needs a little bit of help. And this is exactly what you provide in the book. I've said to people... The, the background context is worth the price. Uh, when I reread that, suddenly it shed so much light on what I had previously read before. Uh, that historical context is just so crucial. Uh, and, you know, you also talk about the work itself, give a rough overview and, and its legacy. And I love the commentary and the gloss, which makes up the latter half of the book. So if people are really digging into the abolition of man, 
and they get stuck on a particular Latin or French or German phrase, your book's right there to, to help them out. But before we go into too much detail, let's talk about the book's genesis. Uh, it's a bit of a departure for you to venture into Lewis's philosophical side, uh, given that your earlier work was related to his fiction, analyzing the Narnian Chronicles from a literary, critical, and theological perspective. So what was it that motivated you to turn to this subject and produce this new kind of book? The initial impulse was an invitation to write a foreword to a new edition of The Abolition of Man. And as I worked on that, uh, it grew and it grew and it grew and until I found that I was, you know, writing a kind of standalone guide or commentary. And and, and so that it was a it was an invitation. Uh, it wasn't a natural move for me because I'm not a philosopher. I, I haven't studied philosophy. I don't teach philosophy. And um I'm slightly out of my comfort zone in this in this work, but I th- I hope that that is all to the good because uh, I'm 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 making no assumptions about what needs to be explained in this work because mm-hmm. I I find it all quite difficult myself. And having taught the abolition of man now to many students over the years, I've seen that they too find it difficult, even if they come from a philosophical background, um, because part of the difficulty of the abolition of man is that it, it's quite oblique. It's Uh, because Lewis was such a great stylist and such a broad thinker and was always wanting to make his his arguments very um, um, meaty and and eloquent and elegant Um, you might say that the that the abolition of man is is quite oblique it's quite padded with with uh, with with literary considerations and, but I think you know that's all to the good, and we might have a chance to talk about the poetic side of the abolition of man. But it does mean that the strictly philosophical argument um, is is somewhat masked or even be- mm. buried, and so unearthing it and clarifying it has has been a task for me, for myself, and then secondly for my students, and now thirdly, I hope for my readers. Yeah, when somebody asked me about abolition of man recently. I described it as Lewis writing philosophy as a poet, Mm. arguing not so much in syllogisms, uh, but in verse, Mm. or or at the very least, in imagery. Yes. Uh, The quotation that I gave earlier about men without chests, I found that really arresting when I first read it. I wasn't quite sure what he meant, (laughs) (laughs) and it took multiple re-readings before I felt like I was starting to get a sense of what he was shooting at. But the image itself was arresting and made me want to come back and dig a little deeper. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. It's it's Lewis writing f- philosophically, but also poetically. So yeah, he he concretizes what would otherwise be a very abstract piece of argumentation with all sorts of images and, and pictures and 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 memorable arresting phrases. Uh, which makes for a classic work, but also, in some respects, for a, a more difficult work. Mm. Who was the intended audience for this book? Because this is the second title that's now been published from Word on Fire Academic, the first being Dr. Holly Ordway's book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, who we also had on the show. Uh, so it's by an academic press, but I would say not only is it very readable, it's also beautiful. You don't think of that when you think of academic. You know, mm. it, It's got a gorgeous cover. I've seen many people describe it as even sublime. Uh, 
And there's a color photo gallery in the center of the book, which, again, isn't something that I would associate with an academic book. Yes, it is an academic press, um, and it is aimed at, you know, a, a, fa a fairly highly educated readership. Uh, so I think, you know, probably at least a, you know, a fairly bright sixteen-year-old is is probably the, the 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 lower end of the target audience. Of course, you can get remarkably bright nine-year-olds. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yes, word on fire academic they. They do produce beautiful books. Um, part of their whole ethos is is the is the pedagogical value of of beauty. You know, the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, leading with beauty. That's what they do for all their books. But I think it's particularly appropriate for this book, given that, you know, Lewis opens his argument with a discussion of something that is beautiful, namely a waterfall. And is it correct to describe such a beautiful cataract as merely pretty or rather sublime? And that's the springboard into his argument against subjectivism. So this beautiful picture of the waterfall on the front cover of the book, um, which is a waterfall, a real life waterfall in uh, Indonesia, ma magnificent photograph that Word on Fire found. Uh, that's, yeah, it's highly appropriate. Now, before we get too far into talking about your book, I think it would be good to sketch out the abolition of man a little bit for listeners who haven't yet read it. So what is the abolition of man? What's Lewis's argument? And why did he write it? The abolition of man is th originated as three philosophical lectures that Lewis gave during the Second World War at the University of Durham. And these lectures are about the objectivity of value. Are things objectively good and evil, right and wrong, for that matter, beautiful or pretty? Or are these terms purely subjective projections that we somewhat arbitrarily apply to the things which meet our senses? So it's partly a defense of the objectivity of value, but it's also partly a, 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 a prophecy about where subjectivism will lead. If we, if we adopt a radically subjectivist approach to uh, value, we will find ourselves in a very in a very tricky situation. Um, indeed, we will <laughs> not to put it too lightly um, abolish ourselves. Hence the title, the abolition of man. We will eradicate something which is fundamental to our humanity, because it's ha it has been said that the abolition of man is is really an essay in philosophical anthropology. It's, it's Lewis trying to define what it is that makes human beings human. And his argument is, from this philosophical perspective, this capacity to determine right and wrong. We don't see that the animals, the non-human animals, do things for, for purely moral purposes. But in human beings, we do. We have a, you know, an entire moral ethos that we inhabit as human beings. Um, and Lewis argues that the crucial test of this is, is when we do something which is actually painful to us. We, we may suffer for doing the right thing. We may even have to die for doing the right thing. The crucial test for the objectivity of value is death for a good cause. And that's one of the things that Lewis really homes in on, uh, thanks to the uh, the old Latin tag from the Roman poet Horace, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, it's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. 
when the rubber hits the road, when when we have to suffer for the doing for doing the right, then we really discover that it is objective. If it were, if it were purely a subjective thing, then we would change the the determination of right and wrong to suit ourselves. We would no longer suffer for it. But this objectivity, this this painfulness, shows us that the so it shows us that the thing really is objective. So that's roughly, in a nutshell, what the abolition of man is about. Um, and why did Lewis write it? Well, he was he was invited to give these lectures, but he he chose this topic because it was already something which had occupied a lot of his attention uh, for for about twenty years and more. Actually, by the time he wrote it in nineteen forty three, uh, you can trace his his interest in the objectivity of value back to at least nineteen twenty two. I think. Um, so long before he was even a theist, let alone a Christian, he believed in the objectivity of value. And in your book, you outline the background for two particular figures that he's responding to, A.J. Ayer and I.A. Richards. And just to go back to the format of the book, I love the fact we had pictures of these people. Because I don't know about you, but when I just see an author's name, particularly if the initial, initial, last name, it's like, uh, it just falls into and out of my brain. But I love the fact that I could then flip to the center of your book and look at these guys. Mm. Uh, and you, you provide a little bit of background with regards to what they were arguing. And there was the story, I had heard it once before, but I hadn't connected it with the abolition of man, about how Lewis once interacted with I.A. Richards. Please tell that story. Yes, yeah, so I.A. Richards, Ivor Richards, uh, was the author of a book called Principles of Literary Criticism, which Lewis actually names, identifies in The Abolition of Man. And he talks about Richards too, directly in the course of the book, um, uh, always disagreeing with him. Um, he lays into Richards all over the place, actually, not just in The Abolition of Man. But they met, they knew each other personally. Uh, Richards came to Oxford. He was a Cambridge figure, but he must have been in Oxford for some debate or some event. And Lewis, for some reason, which I haven't yet been able to un unearth, uh, was his host and was putting him up overnight in Magdalen College. But he'd forgotten to book a room. Uh, but his colleague, R.G. Collingwood, was away. So Lewis said to Richards, oh, you can take Collingwood's room. Uh, oh, but there are no books. Um, I'll wait there. I'll, I'll come straight back. So he, <laughs> Lewis reappears a few moments later, uh, having found from his own rooms his own copy of Richards's book, The Principles of Literary Criticism. And Lewis <laughs> rather uh, sneakily says to Richards, here's a book. This will put you to sleep. <laughs> but then it gets even better. Richards couldn't sleep because this copy of his own book <laughs> was full of Lewis's marginal comments and uh, and his biting disagreements, so it's a, it's a beautifully executed joke on the part of Lewis's on the part of C.S. Lewis, and um, uh, that's not the only one because A.J. A. Ayer, the other figure that you mentioned, um, he also came under you know the lash as it were. Um, Lewis and Ayer debated at the Socratic Club in Oxford, after which Lewis described him privately as a cross between a rodent and a firefly. And having discovered this, A.J. Ayer said, I did not feel altogether flattered, but I had some idea what Lewis meant. <laughs> yeah, I've scratched my head on that one quite a bit. It's like, I'm not quite sure where he's really falling with this, but okay. Uh, would you mind just saying uh, a few words about what these guys were arguing? 
about subjectivism, background of logical positivism. What is it that Lewis is railing against? Yeah, so A.J. Ayer, Freddie Ayer, was his, that was how he was known. Uh, he, were, he was an Oxford Don, and he published a book called um, Language, Truth, and Logic, which argued for logical positivism uh, and the elimination of metaphysics. Um, he, he later retracted almost everything that he argued in that book. But at the time, it caused quite a stir and carried the day with a lot of impressionable young undergraduates. Logical positivism being basically a, a hardline view that the only um, true statements that can be made are ones which can be um, em empirically verified or falsified. Um, Subjectivism is a, is a slightly less strong version of that, and I.A. Richards was associated with subjectivism. That book I mentioned, Principles of Literary Criticism, is very subjectivist uh, in its approach to literature. So both men were, in different ways, uh, undercutting the idea of the objectivity of value, um, were having quite an effect, and Lewis disagreed with them, and so he locked horns with them. Uh, went into battle, uh, as it were, intellectually with them, uh, and not just through publications, but as I say, through through meeting these people and and debating with them publicly. After I was reintroduced to Lewis in my mid twenties, I enjoyed his fiction again, and then I started dipping my toe into his non-fiction. And I do remember picking up a copy of The Abolition of Man. I thought, oh, this is super short. I'll knock this out in no time. And I remember being rather confused. And this is a book I've often heard other people stumble over. What is it about this book that makes people stumble? Uh, well, it's partly that it's operating at a high academic level. He's he's operating in f at a at a level which is you know designed for serious university students um, at one of the great universities of England, Durham University. It's, the, it's generally reckoned to be the third oldest university in England after Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and he's giving these lectures as part of the Riddle Memorial Lecture Series, which is, you know, a fairly high-flown uh, series. So he's operating at a very high level. I thought the fact that it was called the Riddle Lectures was very appropriate because <laughs> at times it did feel a little bit like a riddle. <laughs> Lewis is often best known for his most accessible works. Um, of course he is. That's why they're the most accessible. Um, Mere Christianity originated as 15-minute radio broadcasts over the BBC, where Lewis couldn't bank on his listeners having any particular type of education, and, and therefore he made everything extremely plain and accessible. And actually, if you, if you find The Abolition of Man difficult a good way of limbering up for it is by reading the first four chapters of Mere Christianity, because those first four chapters are a kind of popular version of, of the abolition argument. And there are various other things that he wrote, which are a bit more accessible on the, on the same subject, like uh, his essay, The Poison of Subjectivism, and his essay on ethics. They're all arguing very broadly along the same lines. In The Abolition of Man, it's all done at, at a very high university level. So that's partly why it's difficult. As we've already discussed, Lewis's own poetic uh, tastes make it a little bit e even more oblique. 
And just the, the sheer content of the argument, you know, even when you boil it down to the, you know, the bare bones of it, it's a serious, challenging argument that if we are to make any value judgments at all, we have to assume value and its objectivity. We can't argue to it. And so Lewis talks about this thing called the Tao. It's a Chinese term. That's another reason why people get confused because he's reaching into Confucian terminology. Um, the Tao being this fund or reservoir of moral values, which which we presuppose as human beings. We, we can't imagine living life without them. Or if we do try to imagine, uh, we, we can't then operate in that mode for very long in the real world, because everybody, even if they pretend that value is subjective, will sooner or later come up against something that they think, oh, no, this really does matter. Um, this really is something which is not just true for me, but true objectively. So he's trying to argue for a premise, you might say. He, he's, trying to, he's trying to point out, you know, we stand in this moral atmosphere. And that's, I think, one of the difficult things about the book, that he's, he's trying to get us to examine the ground we're standing on, trying to examine the presuppositions we bring to moral discourse. It's, you know, it's a little like thinking about thinking. Uh, and that kind of, you know, that meta level of inquiry is always quite you know, intellectually difficult. I would say prior to reading through your book, the chief thing that I actually got out of the abolition of man was the appendix, where I think Lewis gives his knockdown, drag him out evidence for that very point. And when Matt and I were going through mere Christianity, and there Lewis is talking about this objective moral law, I remember saying, go and check out the appendix from the abolition of man, because there you'll find the evidence where he's drawing from all of these different cultures and religions across the world. And you see that there is definitely a common core to it that does seem to very strongly suggest that there is something like objective value. So the book can be a little difficult, but Lewis did regard this as one of his, he calls, describes it as almost one of his favorites among his books. And Pope Benedict XVI, he was a fan as well, uh, before he was Pope. And Lewis's former secretary, the late Walter Hooper, he said that this book was just indispensable as an introduction to all of Lewis's work. Why? What is it about this book that makes this so fundamental in terms of understanding Lewis and everything else that he writes? Yes. Um, and, and let me just fine tune the quotation you gave. Lewis said it's almost my favorite among my books, not almost one of my favorites, but almost my favorite among my books. Um, so it's even stronger than, than you suggested. Uh, it's a, it's, that's a very high estimation on Lewis's part. And uh, why was it so favored by him? Well, because it um, speaks to a well, first of all, a very important philosophical point, which which I think he saw the need for in this in this in the logical positivist and subjectivist generation that he found himself part of, but more personally, more existentially, I think Lewis himself had grappled with the temptations towards subjectivism himself in his in his own early life. He'd been drawn in that direction and had found it wanting. He says in Surprised by Joy that in his 
teens, he his mind was in the two hemispheres of his mind were in the sharpest contrast to each other. On the one hand, he was faced with a world of facts without one trace of feeling. But on the other hand, he was faced with a world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood. So there you have, in Lewis's own personal experience, this fact-value distinction, which really lies at the heart of logical positivism. And Lewis found that this was not something that he could live with, this sort of schizophrenic approach. Now everything, you know, atoms and evolution and military service on the one side, and on the other hand, you know, the the Garden of the Hesperides and, and the the, the twilight of the gods and and all these romantic, imaginative, and, and extremely valuable things. Um, how how could he combine the two? How could he reconcile the two? And he found a way. And and having found that way, he wanted to talk about it. And that's indeed precisely what he's doing in the abolition of man. So how did he do that? How did he unite both the facts and the values? Well, this is where we come to the first chapter of. Uh, the Abolition of Man, where, which is entitled Men Without Chests. So Lewis is presenting a picture of the human person in three parts, the head, the chest, and the belly. In the head, we have spirituality, rationality, logic. In the belly, we have senses and passions and emotions. From the belly downwards, we're like the animals. We have a sensible soul. From the head upwards, we're like the angels. We have a rational soul. The chest, which is the liaison officer between head and belly, is the fundamentally human organ. That is the the seat of stable sentiments, of just and civilised feelings. Because we shouldn't eradicate our feelings and our emotions. They matter, but they need to be, as it were, regularised and stabilised. And that's what happens in in a well-ordered chest. Um, neither should we be in, entirely um, satisfied with, with pure rationality. Yeah, we have reason, and that's that's a great gift. But we are embodied creatures too. We are rational animals, so we shouldn't try to pretend that our heads are going to be sufficient. If we do that, if, then we just evaporate upwards into a kind of false spirituality, uh, which can, yeah, on the one side, look like it's sharing in an, the angelic realm, but will too easily devolve into something demonic if we're not careful. And that's precisely what Lewis you know, dramatizes in That Hideous Strength. The villains of That Hideous Strength, remember, remember worship a head on a bracket, a decapitated head of a criminal. Uh, they, they are very literally men without chests in, in that book. But Lewis is wanting to talk about the triumphant vindication of the body, uh, to use that phrase uh, connected with John Donne. And that's what transpires in a well-ordered chest. That's where facts and values are reconciled. Yeah, I think it's very easy to denigrate either of either of those two things, either the, the body and sensuality or the mind and the spirit. It's very easy to think that one is superior to the other. Uh, the, the, when somebody says, I'm spiritual, the, 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 what I always think in my head, even if I don't say it, is, mm, so is Satan. You're going to have to be a little bit more specific. <laughs> uh, but you mentioned that hideous strength, which is really the, the, the fictionalized, the narrative companion to the abolition of man. But the second time through reading the abolition of man, 
the feature, the person that I saw more clearly, really because I'd read it more often, was Uncle Andrew from The Magician's Nephew and even Jadis because they they believe that the rules don't apply to them because they are so great. They have this noble existence, which means that the that the Tao, the natural law, it just does, it just it applies to peasants, it applies to commoners, but not to them. Mm. Absolutely, uh, Jadis and Uncle Andrew are both uh, prime ex- exponents, you might say, of of a subjectivist mentality. And in the course of After Humanity, I have a brief foray into Narnia, just two or three pages. But I do that because at, at one point in the Abolition of Man, Lewis uses this word emeth. He's, he, he talks about how the ancient Hebrews in the Psalms refer to the law, the moral law, as uh, possessing truth, or in the Hebrew, emeth. And then he glosses the word emeth in the notes, and it means kind of fidelity or permanence or truth. And readers of Narnia will recognize there the name of the Calamine soldier in the last battle, the, the noble pagan uh, who finds his way through to the heavenly Narnia at the end of the book. So that leads into a, a little passage I have about the various ways in which Lewis is dramatizing uh, his philosophy from the abolition of man, even in the Narnia Chronicles. And you're quite right that Jadis and Uncle Andrew, they are prime exponents of of uh, anti-Dao thinking. Men like me are freed from common rules, says Uncle Andrew, which Diggory interprets to mean he thinks he can do anything he likes to get anything he wants. And then you may remember later on in the uh, magician's nephew, Uncle, Uncle Andrew can't understand the animals. He, he just hears them growling and roaring, whereas the other characters can hear them speaking. The scene had not made at all the same impression on Uncle Andrew as on the cabbie and the children. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Now, that's a very meaningful phrase, what sort of person you are. Because a large part of the abolition of man is about moral formation, moral education, training up the child in the way he should go. And so that when he becomes an adult, he will not depart from it. That again speaks to the the fundamental nature of the Tao. It's it's something we grow up inside. It's an atmosphere which which we breathe in and breathe out. It's like a trellis that you might train a climbing rose against, and and some roses aren't trained well. They just creep along the ground and and they grow they grow stubby and short and and unattractive, and that can happen for people too if they're not trained up morally in a in a noble and deep chested fashion. And that, alas, is evidently what's happened to Uncle Andrew. As I started reading your book, I, I read the dedication of the book and your explanation as to who you chose and why. And I read the rest of the book, listening to the soundtrack of the Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons movie, The Mission. Uh, I just wanted to ask you to share a little bit about that dedication. Who did you dedicate it to and why? I dedicated the After Humanity to the... Italian composer Ennio Morricone, who's you know one of the great all-time writers of film music, uh, from the good, the bad, and the ugly onwards. Um, but perhaps his greatest soundtrack was to the Mission. And ever since I saw the Mission, I've associated its music with C.S. Lewis by way of waterfalls, because of course viewers of the Mission will remember that the opening scene is of a man on a cross disappearing over the Iguazu. Iguazu Falls in Southern South America. Very powerful scene. 
and the waterfall continues to be a very prominent feature of that movie. Um, the Abolition of Man opens, as we've already discussed, um, with a question about whether a waterfall is sublime or pretty. But also elsewhere in C.S. Lewis, uh, you see the symbolic importance of waterfalls in Lewis's imagination. Think of the great divorce and that truly sublime waterfall that um, is encountered on the outskirts of heaven, which turns out actually to be not just water, but an angel pouring himself down with glad joy into the valley below as if one crucified. So those connections between waterfalls, crucifixion, uh, C.S. Lewis and the mission all fed into my reading of uh, The Abolition of Man, uh, not least because the very final quotation in the appendix is from John's Gospel, Jesus's words, unless a grain of wheat die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Um, uh, He who loves his life will lose it. As I discuss uh, in the concluding chapter of After Humanity, um, there are other connections too. I won't, I won't, won't spoil the reading experience for, for those who haven't yet got to the conclusion. But uh, th- this whole theme of waterfalls, crucifixion, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, and indeed might versus right forms a rich kind of in- interwoven set of connections, which, which I hope will satisfy the reader as much as it satisfied me as I was putting the book together. I wonder if I might be able to add one more connection for you, because as I was listening to the soundtrack and reading your book, I remembered that Gabriel's oboe, which is the main motif, the main theme of the of the movie's soundtrack, was actually converted into a song with lyrics called Nella Fantasia. And I went and looked up the lyrics, and the opening verse is this. In my fantasy, I see a fair world where everybody lives in peace and honesty. Hmm according to the Tao. <laughs> I dream of souls that are always free, like the clouds that fly, full of humanity deep within the soul. Wow, I didn't know that. Can you send me those lyrics? Full of humanity, absolutely. that's absolutely perfect. <laughs> I, I, I got a little excited when the idea crossed my mind. I think I scared my wife because I jumped up from the, from the couch. I said, <laughs> I've got something to share. <laughs> Brilliant. No, please, that, that's fascinating. Earlier, we mentioned the pictures in the center of the book. Uh, What will people find there? Because I really do mean this. I love it when there are pictures in the center of books. If I'm reading a biography, that's where I keep my my bookmark so I can jump back and forward and take a look at the people and the places uh, that I'm reading about. Mm. I agree. I'm with Alice in Wonderland. Remember, Alice says, what is the use of a book without pictures? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm exactly like you. If ever I'm browsing a book in a bookshop or a library, I always go to the pictures. And if they're well chosen and well captioned, they really draw you into the book. And that's precisely Mm. what I'm hoping will happen uh, with these 30 pages of of photographs and images, which Word on Fire Academic have allowed me, some of them in glorious technicolor. And yeah, I'm very proud of of this photo gallery. It's, It's one of the best things about the book, if you ask me. Let me just mention three things quickly. One is a photograph of C.S. Lewis in uniform in the First World War when he was an officer cadet. But just a few figures away from C.S. Lewis in this photograph is the figure of Paddy Moore, uh, who was billeted in the same room as Lewis. That's where they met. Uh, It was just because of the alphabetical arrangement of the billet. Lewis and Moore were put together. They became friends and they promised each other that if one was to die in the war, that the surviving one would look after the dead man's family. Paddy was killed 
and Lewis's whole life was changed. He lived the, the next 30 years with Paddy's mother and for about 20 years with Paddy's sister. And biographers have commented a lot about the social and personal impact of, of the Moore family on Lewis, but they haven't really given much attention to the philosophical impact. But I think it connects very much with what I was talking about earlier, the, the dolce et decorum est theme, this death for a good cause being the crucial test of the objectivity of value. Lewis himself had nearly been killed in the First World War, and his friend Paddy had been killed. So Lewis was facing this issue directly. It was a matter of great personal and emotional moment to him and to the Moors. It wasn't just abstract philosophizing. So that's one of the reasons why it's so relevant to the abolition of man. That's one photograph. Another that I'm very proud of is um, Lewis's original blurb for the abolition of man. Nobody seems to have known about this before. Uh, I dug it up in the archives of the University of Durham. It's a paragraph in Lewis's handwriting. I got permission from the Lewis estate to reproduce it. Uh, even the, the late, great Walter Huber didn't seem to have known about this. It's never been published before. And um, to be honest, it's not a very good blurb. You can see why it wasn't used. But, but nonetheless, it's interesting to see how Lewis at least attempted to endorse his own book. See, this is one of the things about Lewis. I Sometimes he is this amazing writer. Other times, it just just he just drops a clangor. Mm. It's kind of like his naming of the Narnia books. When you hear the ones that he was suggesting, it's like, no, <laughs> that's 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 terrible. That's bad. That's right. Just occasionally, he he did have a you know a, a day off. Um, and this blurb is is a is a prime example of that. But still, it's interesting, and, and I think you know important at a you know at a low level. I'm also proud of the photograph on figure five on page 123, which is a detail from the uh, a portrait of the senior common room of University College Oxford. <laughs> and it shows three men, uh, the master of the college and two philosophy fellows, um, both of whom had taught Lewis uh, when he was a, a student at UNIV. And um, it was with these three men that Lewis met in 1924 when he was appointed to his first academic teaching job at Oxford. And it's delightful that these three men just happened to be next to each other in this portrait. So I was able to detail it out and, and show them in, in some, uh, some close-up. And there are many others. There are 36 images all told, and um, I'm really proud and pleased with how it's come together. The next question I want to ask related to sort of the structure, but also how you're expecting people to use this book. When should people read your book, and particularly in relation to Lewis's text itself? First, they should read The Abolition of Man. Well, actually, first, they should read, as I mentioned earlier, the, the first four chapters of, the, of Mere Christianity and The Poison of Subjectivism. Those are good ways of limbering up for abolition. So read those shorter pieces, then abolition, then turn to my book, because you'll then have questions. You'll know how difficult The Abolition of Man is. Um, and hopefully when you read my guide, things will come into focus and, and all sorts of mysteries will be explained. And after you've read my guide, then reread The Abolition of Man. And, and hopefully it will be a much more satisfying experience. Hmm. Well, as we start to wrap things up, in the last chapter before the beginning of your commentary in Gloss, you link The Abolition of Man with Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. And the closing paragraphs were like a meat cleaver for me. So with that in mind, as, as we wrap things up, what is the impact of the abolition of man? And in what way has Lewis been proved right? 
Yes, Al- Alistair McIntyre, who's still with us, thank goodness, he's he's now in his 90s, wrote this book, After Virtue, a very influential work of philosophy, and in many respects, very, very similar to Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, except Alistair McIntyre is, you know, full-time professional philosopher, as Lewis was not, and therefore After Virtue has has gained a lot more traction in the in the world of professional philosophy. But I think its connection with the abolition of man has not received as much attention as it deserves. And th- those paragraphs that I that you describe as being like a meat cleaver, yes, they they struck me too as as, as so timely, so pertinent. Uh, and I, I, if you if you don't mind, David, I'll just read them myself because McIntyre is arguing how in our present culture, differences of view have become incommensurable. You have your truth. I have my truth. There is no objective truth. We just have to, you know, shout we at each other. We just shout at each other. Yeah. It put me in mind of the opening part of Mere Christianity, uh, where Lewis speaks about the difference between fighting and quarreling. Yes, exactly. The idea being that I'm trying to bring you around to my point of view because there is an objective truth out there that I'm trying to help you see that you are currently not in conformity with. If I don't think that exists, then all we can really do is just fight. Yes, there can be no moral persuasion if there is no objective value. If there's nothing that, that unites you and me in an ethical ecology, then... The only way I can get you to agree with my point of view is to strong arm you to share my perspective. And for as long as differences of view are considered unimportant, we celebrate rather naively this idea of diversity. Diversity is good up to a point, but it's not a, a good uh, it's not a good end point. It's not certainly not a good way of resolving serious disputes. And that's why Alistair McIntyre can say it's easy to understand why protest becomes a distinctive moral feature of the modern age, and why indignation is a predominant modern emotion. The self-assertive shrillness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure that protesters can never win an argument. The indignant self-righteousness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure equally that the protesters can never lose an argument either. (laughs) Hence, protest is characteristically addressed to those who already share the protesters' premises. Protesters rarely have anyone else to talk to but themselves. This is not to say that protest can't be effective. It's to say that it cannot be rationally effective and that its dominant modes of expression give evidence of a certain perhaps unconscious awareness of this. Now that's Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue, but he's he's really just there bringing to a fine point Lewis's whole argument in The Abolition of Man, that if there's no, th- no such thing as objective value, all we can do is shout at each other. Uh, it's the law of the jungle. Uh, might dissolves into right, and the real question is one of power. That's so good. I actually bought after virtue, off the strength of just that quotation. I'd heard about it and I heard people mentioning it, but just reading that paragraph is like, all right, this is clearly going to be my next book. Excellent. Oh, that thrills me. I'm so pleased to hear that. That's excellent. After Virtue is a brilliant book and, and everybody should read it. Well, I will, uh, I'll let the listeners know what I think of it. So I think it's probably going to be my next book. So I'm going to be talking about it on the podcast fairly soon. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for coming onto the show to talk about your latest book. 
my wife and I, we will be back in England, hopefully either by the end of the year or at the very least 2022. So I'm going to be bringing a laser etched Pints with Jack glass in my suitcase with your name on it. Excellent. As we wrap up, where can people go to find out more about you and where can they pick up this new book? About me, uh, michaelward.net. That's my website about the book, wordonfire.org forward slash humanity. The book is published by Word on Fire Academic. And by the way, we ought to add that if you buy the book through Word on Fire, you get automatically a free copy of The Abolition of Man with a cover design that matches that of After Humanity. The publishers of Abolition of Man, HarperCollins, have brought out this new edition with a beautiful complementary cover design. Uh, and so the two go really well together. So order your order your copy of After Humanity through wordonfire.org forward slash humanity. Yeah, getting a custom cover for the book was a bit of a coup. I loved it. Well, thanks again to Dr. Ward for coming on the show. He's going to have to leave now because there is a pint with his name on it. Uh, we'd like to thank him. We'd like to thank all of our patron supporters, particularly all of our top tier supporters, including Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And listeners, please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>